ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Ignition, the radio show and podcast for the new evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and we want to launch your own efforts to explain the Catholic faith and to invite others to live it. Before we get into today's episode, we want to remind you that we love listener feedback. So if you've got questions about today's episode, if you've got ideas for future episodes, please contact us. There are two easy ways that you can do that. You can email us, ignition at sfcatholic.org, or you can tweet at us, at sfdiocese, and use the hashtag ignition with any questions you have or ideas for future episodes. Again, my name is Dr. Chris Bergwald. I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship and Evangelization with the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Been in that role since the fall of 2002. Since the summer of 1999, I've been married to Jermaine, and we have five children. And across the table from me in the recording studio is Father Joseph Scholten. Father, can you just say hi and introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Hi, everyone. Father Scholten here. Uh, been a priest for a little over a year for the Diocese of Sioux Falls. I serve in Sioux Falls at St. Lambert Parish Woo! and O'Gorman <laughs> High School. Go Knights! Well done. Um, so, Father, you and I, uh, one of the things that we do, um, are, have done, are doing, and will continue to do, uh, so help us God, <laughs> is an occasional series on a book by Dr. Brant Petrie called The Case for Jesus. Um, depending on you've, if you've listened before, episode 349 to Ignition, we sort of gave uh, introduction to this book and to the series. Um, and in this this episode of Ignition, we're going to be diving a little bit more into the content. So if you're quite curious what the background, the other episode, uh, the one other episode in the series so far, um, check out our archives um, and you can listen to that uh, preliminary one, but just to give you a real quick, just to get everybody up to speed, Father, how could we summarize what we've discussed previously? Sure. Well, we um, have talked about the misconception that Jesus uh, is a good moral teacher, but not really God, and never claimed to be God. Right. And that was just a later uh, add-on by some of his more outlandish followers, uh, for whatever reason. And what we're trying to do is we're delving into Dr. Petrie's book, Case for Jesus, in order to show that the Gospels really are historically reliable documents. Right. Uh, and while they can't prove that Jesus is the Son of God, they can't prove that he is who he claimed to be, uh, they do show us what he claimed, and they do give an accurate description of, of what he did and what he taught. Yep. And that's a preliminary for making our own act of faith in Jesus. So what we're doing throughout the course of this series, um, occasional series, is explaining how how we can have it's it's reasonable to trust that the gospels are historically true. To me, that's the bottom line: is demonstrating the reasonable nature of the assertion the gospels tell us the truth about Jesus. Right? right. Would that be a fair right. yeah. summary? Uh, yes. And we're doing so because um, sometimes people, based on certain scripture scholarship, is, have have begun to doubt that that truthfulness, that historicity of the Gospels. And, and we want to, for your own sake, but then in your work, uh, personally, um, if you are a Catholic or Christian, um, when you're trying to explain, well, how can we really trust the Gospels to other people? Hopefully that um, this book, or at least our conversation about the book, will be helpful. 
Um, so, Father, I think maybe as a way in, um, and I think this is the point that that you've addressed when you've talked about the book that I think is is worth us just talking talking briefly about the manuscript evidence for the Gospels. And I think it just just to um, be just start at the basics, the foundation. Of course, the Gospels were written; they were literally written down yes. um, uh, with the instrumentation that they would use. They didn't have you know they couldn't buy reams of copy or paper um, at the <laughs> the local local copy store. Um, they used papyrus um, mm-hmm. and uh, inks and so on. And they, they wrote the gospels. Um, we'll talk about who wrote the gospels in, in just a little bit, but they were written down. But one thing that people sometimes wonder about, they're maybe surprised when they, they discover, they first hear, it. we do not have copies. We don't have the original actual, actual manuscripts that, um, the gospel authors wrote down. Right. Right. We don't have right now and probably never will any sort of first gospel of John or, or Matthew or, or even, you know, one original copy of one of Paul's letters or something. Right. But these were important enough documents that they obviously were copied. And in fact, copied, uh, quite a bit more than any other ancient document. Uh, in, in fact, we have, um, we have just under 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, not entire New Testament, but you know, at least Partial. sections of the New Testament or an individual letter or book or something. Now, that 6,000 is a little bit deceptive because a manuscript is, is anything hand-copied, a hand-copied document. And so that, that basically takes us up to uh, the 1400s. But we, have, uh, we do have copies of most of the New Testament um, that date from just a century or so after its writing. So we do have a good amount of early, early uh, sources for the Gospels that, um, that, have, that reach us. Uh, most classical sources, just to give you some sort of context, mm-hmm. other, uh, other ancient writings, you know, say like a dialogue of Plato or one of Sophocles' plays or something, um, almost, all of, almost always have less than, uh, or fewer than 20 copies. Tw- and those 20. Are 20 total. Right. Okay. The manuscripts. Okay. Uh, and those are usually, they usually date from between 700 and 1400 years after the work itself was composed. Right. So there's a long process of copying and recopying and recopying to get the copies that we have. Okay. So just let me uh, con- concretize that. Um, so Plato roughly, I don't remember exactly, but Plato roughly f- 400 BC ish. He yeah. He's a couple centuries BC. Before. Yeah. He's. So, so let's just say Alexander the Great. Uh, he wrote his his the Republic. Okay. Um, yeah. What you're saying is documents like that. In that case, the oldest ones that we have were written 700 years after the original was written. Typically, for most yeah, for most wow. ancient uh, okay. classical documents. That's right. So if if that were the case, with the, and we're, I'm not saying it is, but if that were the case with Plato's Re- the Republic, that would mean that the first copy we have came like 400 A.D. Right. Okay. Right, which okay. is much later than our earliest copies of of the New Testament or books of the so New how, Testament. So how how old are those oldest yeah, copies? Great question. It's kind of exciting when you start to look at look at some of it. Um, look at the evidence. Uh, the The oldest piece of the New Testament we have is a uh, a fragment. So it's not the entire thing, but it's the first um, it's the first few pages, you could say, the first section of the Gospel of John, and that's Papyrus 66, Okay, uh, and that dates from the 2nd century. 
Okay. They don't know exactly when, but through um, different dating techniques uh, that's been dated to the second century. So probably around so the 100 years. Uh, somewhere in the 100s, okay. you know, before okay. the year uh, 200. Before the 200. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So depending when John, you said that was his first letter, first John? No, the gospel. The gospel of John. The gospel. Okay. Yeah. So mo most most scholars uh, of all stripes think that John's gospel is written probably in the 90s. So what this what you're saying is that that partial manuscript is no more than 100 years after the fact. Yeah. If he wrote in the 90s, then so it'd be... So far yeah. closer to the original writing exactly. than any other virtually any other ancient document. Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, and just the sheer numbers too. I mean, we have just compared to any, any other, you were talking about Plato's Republic or, um, or we mentioned plays and ancient plays and things, just the sheer number of, of, uh, of, of manuscript is pretty um, remarkable. Uh, you said 6,000. 6,000 okay. uh, manuscripts. So anything hand copied um, before the advent of the printing press. Why, but why? Just because there are a lot of them doesn't necessarily mean that they're true, right? So. But, but I think it's important to the reason for this is important to me is we trust other ancient documents that that are especially of a historical nature. Sure. We accept sure. the truth of their um, of, of the his, their historical claims, even though they were written multiple centuries, centuries and centuries. No, even though the copies we have came centuries after the originals were written. Right, right. Yeah, yeah we, for example, we, we trust, you know, when, when the Greek historians write about uh, the Peloponnesian War, we trust that they give, broadly speaking, an accurate description of the events and sort of the sequence of things, um, even though the the uh, we don't have as many copies of their writings, that the writings, the copies we have uh, are have been recopied several times before we actually get them and things. But historically speaking, they're still they're, they're considered, considered reliable. We right. consider them reliable. Right. So the question will be, why why is there a different standard with the Gospels? And we'll be right. getting into that because right. we have more manuscripts that are closer, not only to the date of the original, but to the date of the events that they're speaking of right. as well. Right. So again, that fragment of John's Gospel is less than 200 years after the life of Jesus himself. Right, right. Why... Um, well, I guess I'm probably, I think I probably just answered my question. We're getting into manuscripts here and we're going to move on, but why is this important to know? Again, thinking of um, the average Catholic out there uh, for their own sake, talking about this with family and friends. Why is this little discussion we've just had about the manuscripts good to know as opposed to, well, these are two academics that are discussing right. things that are totally irrelevant. Right. I think this is important because it, it really gets to the incarnation right okay that that god really entered into human history and had an effect on people and people did something about it right uh and four of them wrote a biography of of this man who was the son of god right and uh and and you know the real people did this right with with real pen and ink and real on real pieces of parchment or real papyrus uh scrolls and then these were hand copied right and that that's not only how god that's not only how God enters into history, but how he continues his presence in history and how he continues to communicate uh, the gospel message. It's, it's, it's through human means, through right. human instruments. And in the first century, it was papyrus. In the 21st century, it's podcasts. But right. hopefully, <laughs> the same message is being communicated. Exactly, yeah. And for me, I think it goes back to what I had said just a moment ago, how um, if we're applying the same standard of, of um, historical scholarship to 
to the gospels that we apply to other, other ancient texts. If we apply the same standard, then we have to conclude the gospels are historically reliable because we have better manuscript evidence, frankly. Right. And, and there's other reasons right. too that we'll get into. Right. Okay. Um, where do we want to go from here, Father? What, 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 what's a great next step? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty commonly held that the gospels were originally anonymous documents. And Dr. Pichu does a good job in his book about uh, confronting that assertion. Okay. And maybe we can talk about that. Were the gospels anonymous? Were these names just sort of symbolic or were they added later to lend some credibility to what, the, what they were claiming? So, so from what I understand, the argument here that's made is if you look at the gospel text themselves, nowhere in the gospel text does it say, I, Matthew, a former tax collector turned apostle, am now writing to tell you about blah, blah, blah. Matthew doesn't do that with Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't do that in Mark's gospel. John doesn't do that in John's. Luke doesn't do that in Luke's. The only, reason, the only reason that we call it Matthew's, Mark's, Luke's, or John's gospel is because the title is the gospel according to blank. So if the gospels themselves, the text themselves, forget the title, the text themselves never say I, Matthew, am writing this, then it has to be considered anonymous. Hmm. You're right. That's, right? that's, that's, that's the, the objection, that's right? That's the objection, right. Why is that? A, right. w- what's the importance of that objection, do you think? Before we respond to it, let's understand its weight. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it would allow one more easily to say, well, these aren't written by eyewitnesses. These okay. guys didn't really know what they were talking about. Uh, they don't paint an accurate picture of Jesus. Okay. Because if I say the Gospel of Matthew is written by a man who lived with Jesus, who you know shared his journeys, who was sitting with him at the Last Supper, then I have to take that seriously as uh, as a, a record of who Jesus was, what he said, what he did. Um, but if I can, if I say, oh, that wasn't actually by the tax collector turned disciple, uh, but just by some person who maybe didn't even ever see Jesus or or know who he was, or, uh, then I can then I can cast into doubt or ca- what I hear and read in the gospel is cast into doubt. Okay. So, uh, so it's an important objection. So how do we reply to it? I think it's important first to note that while, uh, while you can sort of set the title aside, and if you do that, uh, you, you get a, you can say, well, there aren't actually, uh, records of, of the authors within the gospels themselves, um, like you said, Matthew doesn't claim to be the one writing the gospel, except in the title. Um, first of all, you can't really set the titles aside, okay? Because there are no manuscripts that don't have titles, right? Every manuscript we have of the gospels begins with the gospel according to blank, right? Whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke mm. or John, um, every every piece of evidence tells us that these were never anonymous; that they always included this uh, title that their author always intended to communicate who he was through this title. And uh, there aren't, right, there aren't anonymous copies of the Gospels floating around, right? So, so there's a theory that there were anonymous copies and then the titles were added later, but there's no physical evidence to back up that theory. So, so, to claim, so in other words, just saying um, the objection runs, Matthew never identifies 
himself as the author of the gospel. Uh, but the point that's made, and therefore it's anonymous, but, but what you're saying is every manuscript we have of any of the gospels, um, that includes the beginning at least, has the title the gospel according to blank right. so there are in so the objection is trying to say that they <clears throat> the gospels are anonymous the response to that is no they're not anonymous because every copy that we have um, at least with the beginning of the gospel refers to the author the gospel according to so and so right right um, and those are copies from uh, the copies from the second century fourth century fourth and fifth century. Um, each of them begin in the same way, and and there's never variation. You know, we don't have any uh, we don't have any copies that say this is the gospel according to Mark, Mark, and then it reads just like Matthew or John or okay. something, right? Uh, so in order for there to in order for the anonymous theory to work, um, these four different writings would have to circulate and um, and spread throughout the Mediterranean world for a significant period of time, and then all of a sudden, mysteriously around the world, people decide to start adding titles. But not only do they add titles, they add the exact same four titles to the same four writings without gotcha. any variation. Okay. And that seems like a bit of a stretch. So there's no copy of a gospel that, whose text begins, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and its title is the Gospel According to Mark. Nope. That's, that's, that's John's gospel, and every copy and of every the gospels copy, every copy begins, begins the Gospel According to John. Yeah, with with the name John, and uh, and to contrast that a little bit, uh, and Petrie does this well. Uh, there is an anonymous writing in the New Testament. It's the letter to the Hebrews, and mm. uh, and the letter to the Hebrews doesn't identify, never identifies an author. Um, it doesn't say this is this is Paul's letter to the Hebrews or this is Apollos's letter to the Hebrews. Neither in the title nor in the text, right? <clears throat> so. What do you see there in the manuscript evidence? The earliest copies just say to the Hebrews, right? Um, but then later, as it's copied and transmitted, people start adding adding authors, right? They start to attribute it to one person or another. But they don't attribute it to the same author because it's actually an anonymous text, right? Gotcha. Um, one 10th century manuscript uh, says that says, says to the Hebrews written from Italy by Timothy, right? Uh, an 11th century manuscript says to the Hebrews written from Rome by Paul. Uh, and so that's what happens when you get an actual anonymous text. Different uh, copyists will eventually start adding different authors based right. on whatever. Uh, but that's it shows that it's really anonymous. Right. right. That doesn't happen with the Gospels. It's the same author every time. And there are no copies that say. Without. Yep. There's. Yeah. With, without attribution to a particular author. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Ignition. This is a broadcast for the New Evangelization. Father Joseph Scholten and I, Dr. Chris Bergwald, are speaking about Brant Petrie's book, The Case for Jesus, and really the ideas that he's raising, all of which are about establishing, um, demonstrating the truthfulness, the historicity of the Gospels, and so that we can have reasonable assurance about what the Gospels say Jesus did and said, and therefore that we can have assurance about who he is based on what he said about himself. Is that a fair summary, Father, of what we're doing here in this Definitely. series? So, so far um, in this episode, we've been talking about um, the manuscripts and then about the allegedly anonymous nature of the Gospels. Uh, Father, do you want to, anything else to say about this point of the anonymous 
nature of the Gospels, allegedly, uh, falsely anonymous nature of the Gospels, or do you want to take it somewhere else? I think let's let's take it somewhere else. Can okay. we uh, dive into the, each of these four authors? Who sure. are these men? And Sounds good. What do we know about them? Yep. And we might, uh, again, this is an occasional series that Father and I are doing. Um, we will pick up wherever we leave off today, we'll pick up in, in our third part of this series. So don't feel like um, we're trying to wrap everything up in about the next eight minutes or so. Sounds good. So Matthew. Yes. You've talked a little bit about Matthew. Right. Uh, what does the gospel tell us? Well, the title says it's by Matthew. And then uh, in 9-9, we get the story of the calling of Matthew. 9-9. Nine, nine. What do you mean 9-9? Nine, nine? Sorry. Matthew 9, chap- uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Gotcha. The same gospel. Okay. Um, the name shows up again, Matthew, right? And Jesus is walking by the customs post, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting there. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Right, and then Matthew again is listed later in the uh, in the listing the number of uh, the calling of the twelve disciples. Right at um, beginning of chapter ten of the same gospel, that Matthew the tax collector is counted as one of the apostles. Right. Right. So if you're reading this in the ancient world, you see according to Matthew at the beginning, and then you get to chapter nine. And, oh, this is where this guy enters into the story. Right. This is where he stepped in. Um, it's important that Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, because that meant that he was literate. Okay. Right? He sure. had to read and write. And not only in Hebrew, or not excuse me, not only in Aramaic, which was the common language of the of the time in the in, in Palestine, uh, but he probably had to know Greek as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're dealing with taxes in the Roman Empire, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, uh, and in a in a somewhat gentile region or a mixed region like Galilee was. Uh, you'd have to know Greek. You'd have to be able to, you know, handle transactions and records in Greek as well. And so it's it's uh, it's no coincidence that he was the disciple that that started to write stuff down, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's sometimes objected that well, a lot of Matthew uh, is a lot of Matthew's gospel is similar to Gospel of Mark, um, and why would he use Mark if Mark wasn't one of the apostles and Matthew was? So the the, the point of that objection is. Um, to show or to cast doubt on the apostle Matthew actually being the author of Matthew. Right. Because so as you were just saying, Mark wasn't even there. Why would this author of Matthew's gospel rely on Mark's testimony who wasn't even there um, instead of just saying what he saw himself? And yet we see that that Matthew does seem to draw on Mark. Why would he do that if, sure. he, if he were an eyewitness? Right. Sure. Is that the, the that's the objection? Okay. Right. Okay. Um, you can respond to it in two ways. First, you could say, well, it's, there's, even though it, it seems like it, there's no proof, uh, strictly speaking, that, that Matthew is based on Mark or uses Mark. And, and in the early church, some thought Matthew came for, was written first, others thought Mark was written first. Right. Um, but even if Matthew, Matthew the Apostle did use Mark's uh, gospel as a source, uh, it doesn't mean that... Um, well, I should, I'll put it this way. The Apostle Matthew could have used Mark as a source because Mark's gospel, according to early Christian writers, was based on Peter's testimony. Okay. And Peter was an earlier disciple, an earlier follower of Jesus than Matthew. And so okay. he was present for some of those beginning events that uh, Matthew would not have record of. Right. So, so what you're saying there is that one of the responses to the objection is that Matthew could have used Mark's gospel as a source for his own gospel because mark 
is telling us what Peter heard and saw, and Peter was there from the beginning. Exactly. Okay. Maybe we should jump into Mark. Okay. Um, hold on before you do that. So are there any other examples? Actually, I, I did want to ask this. Are there any other examples of um, in history of, of where somebody uses another disciple's testimony um, in his own writings? Sure, sure. So um, Xenophon wrote, a, uh, wrote the life of Socrates. Okay. Right? Xenophon was a student of Socrates, okay. the famous Greek philosopher in Athens. And uh, even though Xenophon himself, you know, sat at Socrates' feet, so to speak, and learned from him um, and knew him, still he used another he used another student's testimony in in compiling his uh, his work on the life of Socrates. He he um, cites Hermogenes, who was another student, a fellow student with him, when he wants to write about Socrates. And so there's precedent for that in the ancient world. So so there's precedent for one disciple using the the written testimony of another contemporary to speak about their master. Exactly. Okay, okay. So we've got about three minutes to go. Um, I don't want to rush us through, Mark, but let's at least start. And if we finish, we finish. If not, we'll pick up in a future episode. Sure. Well, I alluded to this uh, earlier that, that Mark's testimony is based on the apostle Peter. Mark's gospel is based on, is based on what Peter taught about Jesus, what he remembered. And there are other places in the New Testament that uh, that confirm that Peter and Mark had a relationship. Uh, the One of the letters of St. Peter, 1 Peter, uh, has Peter call it, in one of the letters, Peter calls Mark, my son. And so there's this close affectionate relationship right. between uh, between that apostle, Peter, and this, this man, Mark. Uh, he also shows up in the Acts of the Apostles in chapters 12 and 15, and he's a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas. Um, he appears as to be well-known in by the Christians in Jerusalem and in Rome, uh, which corresponds to Peter's life as well. Of course, Peter uh, ended up in Rome and was eventually martyred there. And um, it's significant, we'll maybe start with this next time, uh, it's significant that Mark himself is not an eyewitness. Right. Right. Um, now, say the Gospels were anonymous and the titles were added later and things. Why oh. would they choose? Why would you choose to use the name of a non-witness? Right. 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 Uh, why wouldn't you just say the Gospel according to Peter? Right. Right. If you're trying to lend credibility to an anonymous text, uh, choosing somebody who himself wasn't present for the events doesn't seem like the best way to do if you're making it up right if it's made up if the title's made up um why choose somebody like mark right and not one of the main players right so so in other words by the 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 fact that the title of the second gospel is that the gospel according to mark and mark was not an eyewitness that itself actually confirms the fact that mark wrote it because it wouldn't make sense for it to be attributed to him if if he weren't, um, uh, it would make sense for it to be attributed to him because he's not an eyewitness if it wasn't, in fact, historically accurate. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, we got about a minute left, Father. Anything else to say? I, I don't feel like I want to start on Luke. Probably not, because Luke is a pretty pretty rich topic. We'll save that for next time. So just to wrap up, how would you bottom line what we've been saying in this episode? Bottom line, these four documents that have reached us, uh, the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, are best explained uh, as the writings of the men whose names appear in the titles, right? 
Matthew most likely wrote Matthew, and so on. And therefore, we can trust them. And we can we can trust them. We can trust them, what they say. Okay. So we'll continue uh, in a future uh, episode of this series. That will wrap up this episode of Ignition. Tweet us at SF Diocese with any thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes. And until next time, dear listeners, may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.